I have three points. Some of you will be pleased to know. So if you want to make notes, the first point is the twisted world of sin. The twisted world of sin, that's going to be the first point. The second point is going to be the Lord you can't escape. And the third point is going to be the stunning mercy of God. So let's begin with the twisted world of sin. It's not hard to read this account, is it? And think what a terrible state of affairs Israel is in. Stolen property, murder, deceit, and involvement from people at the bottom to people at the top, right? From messengers right through to the city uh, officials, the king and the queen. What a terrible state of affairs Israel is in. Up to this point in the book of Kings, the key issue has been idolatry. It's been that the people of God have exchanged the true God, the Lord who took them out of Egypt. They've switched him around and they're worshipping other gods. Baal, Ashtaroth, various other gods of the nations. That's the big concern. We haven't heard much to this point about the social evils in the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Judah. It's mainly been about idolatry. It's a vertical problem. But now we just see that social problem writ large. We just get taken right into this ugly social picture. And it's no surprise. You get rid of the true God of truth and justice and goodness and love and you wonder why your society ends up rotten. It's because you cannot live in this world without the true God. You cannot live rightly in this world unless you trust and obey the true God of the world, who has written his ways into the very fabric of the whole universe. Just think about, look at these few people that we have in here, these main characters in this, in this opening section uh, of chapter 21. Ahab. Greedy. Isn't he? He's the king. How much stuff does he have? But what does he want? He wants that piece of land that's close by. Comfort. Ease. Is it not easy enough for him to go to another portion of land? Greedy. Cowardly. He won't say anything to his wife. Surely he knows what his wife's about to go and do. Jezebel says to him, Look, get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard. How are you going to do that? If not unjustly. He knows that. What's he doing? He's sulking in bed. He's convictionless. 
spineless, no backbone, no morals, nothing solid about him. He lays in bed, sulking. Ahab's a really weak character, isn't he? In one sense. What's really ugly about Ahab is that outwardly he's really weak. He's in bed, he's, cut, he's gone home, he's vexed, sullen, sulking. Oh, I can't get that piece of land. But there's a thread in Ahab. It's the thread of selfish desire. And that thread is as strong as steel. He's willing to fast. He's willing to give up food. He's fasting. He's strong enough to do that for the thing that he really wants. And as soon as he gets it, what does he do? It's as though his strength is regained. That's what happens. We can be just like that. Outwardly appear weak. Play it like we're the victim. But actually, there's one thread in us. It's that selfish, I will get what I want thread. And it is unbreakably strong. And it will just hold on there so tenaciously. That is such an ugly way to be. God deliver us. And that's Ahab. Ahab. Naboth. Total contrast of a man. A man of courage. A man of conviction. A man of faith. A man of the covenant. A man who will say to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you my father's inheritance. What's he doing? What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that the land belongs to the Lord. He knows that the land was given to the people of Israel and part of it was given to his family, his tribe, the inheritance of his family to be passed down. You can read more about that in Leviticus 25, or I think probably more appropriately, Numbers chapter 36, if you want to make a note. That's where we hear about Zelophehad and his daughters who uh, do the noble thing and recognize that the inheritance shouldn't leave uh, their family line, but they don't have any brothers, so they're saying, hey, we should get the inheritance to keep it in the family line. It's the Lord himself who says, yes, they've spoken correctly. And write that in as a, as a rule that that's what happens in, with the land. And Naboth knows that if he, if, he, if he sells the land on, he's not poor. He's not going to get that land back in the year of Jubilee, which is one possible way to get your land back. He knows what's going on. He knows that Ahab's just going to take that land and have it as a piece of land for himself. Another way to put it is, Naboth has got his eyes on the kingdom And Naboth has got his eyes on the inheritance. It's like Esau, who sold his inheritance for the bowl of stew. And that really was a 
little picture, as Paul uses it in the New Testament, of giving up the inheritance of the new creation, the eternal inheritance, for a temporary fleeting pleasure. Paul picks it up and says, watch out, you don't do an Esau with sexual immorality and give up your eternal inheritance for a fleeting pleasure. It's the same thing here. He recognizes this land is about, this whole place is about more than just this piece of land. This is about the promises of God and God has promised to give us this land forever. He's a man of conviction. He's a man of the covenant. He's a man of faith. And he's silent, isn't he? He's just got that line at the beginning and then that's it. He really is just a silent, innocent, suffering victim. He's righteous. He does what's right. And then he's moved to, you don't hear any more about him, but he's brutally taken outside of the city and stoned to death. How unjust. What a terrible thing. What a terrible state the kingdom of Israel was in. That this is what they were doing to godly, faithful people. And Jezebel, bold-faced, full of deceit and lies, ready to take the king's seal, deceptively cover it up, as though a letter in his name, cold, calculated. She knows exactly what she's doing. In her hands, they're clean. Right? There's no blood, actually, on her hands, is there? She's just writing a letter. To have a man taken outside, out the city, completely unjustly, held at a kangaroo trial, and murdered. She's taken her mind and her skill and she's put it to evil ends. Again, how ugly. What a scene. And it's not just those three characters. It's the elders and the leaders, isn't it? Who receive the letter and know the whole plot. And the two men who are the worthless men. Surely they know that they're making up the story. Right? They didn't hear him curse God and the king, because that's not what he does. But they're willing to play their little part. The elders are willing to play their little part. All in self-preservation. And again, cowardice. I don't want to stand up to the queen. I don't want to stand up to the king. And don't you see again how the Lord would be so angry at a nation, his people, acting like this? Because here again you have a false fast. They're willing to hold a fast in order to enact an unjust trial to kill a man at a time when they are not fasting for the terrible state of the nation. They're not willing to have a fast, a real fast, 
and call on the mercy of the Lord, but they're willing to have a fast to achieve their own ends. They're willing to act religiously to get what they want. Use the religion. Use a false religion to get what they want. Which indicates that they knew the law. Why have two witnesses come and testify against Naboth? Because that's the law. If you want him stoned, you need two witnesses. What a thing to do. We know the law enough. The law says we shouldn't be killing a man. But let's keep the law to kill a man. Religion or piety as a cloak and a mask, a tool and a door for their own selfish ends. And in the process, in this short story, when the focus has been on idolatry so far, we just get one chapter and the Ten Commandments are absolutely shattered. Aren't they? Let's have a think. Idolatry is already out, right? Because we've got Jezebel who has got a whole cohort of worshippers of Baal and Ashtaroth, a bunch of whom were killed earlier that she got really mad about. We're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain, which means we're not supposed to bear God's name and say we belong to Yahweh, we belong to this God, we're marked out by him, and then act as though you you're not marked out by him. You're not supposed to name him vainly, in an emptily. How vain, how empty, what deceit, what two-facedness to hold the fast in the Lord's name to commit that sin. We're not supposed to covet that's what's driving this whole thing the king's surely got enough we're not supposed to bear false witness the whole thing's riddled with that false witness and lies all the way through we're not supposed to steal and that's precisely what this is all about and we're not supposed to murder you get rid of the true God and you end up in a twisted world of sin. Now you might think to yourself, you can think about your own life there, but that's not where I want to go. Because you might say, well our nation has got rid of the true God and we're not a twisted world of sin, are we? We're not that bad. I'm just going to pick one topic. I don't normally talk about this kind of thing. It's a public affair. But I think that it very accurately shows that underneath the surface of a society that may in some ways look respectable, we are propped up by the same kind of horrible sin. 
And what I mean is this. That story that we've just, the whole story of Nabot's Vineyard, it ends very neatly, doesn't it? There's a resolve. It happens. Ahab goes and takes the piece of land. All is well. Nobody's punished. Nobody sees it. Jezebel's at home. She looks fine. She's happy. The elders of the city, nothing's happened to them. Neither the two scoundrels. Ahab's got the land. Carry on. It's all happened secretly. It wasn't a big news. It wasn't on the news. People went running around saying, look at this tragedy. Everything looked neat. This year alone, 214,256 children were killed in the womb in England and Wales alone. 214,256,000 human beings made in the image of God were killed in the womb. England and Wales alone this year. This year, 2021. In 2020, the year of the pandemic, 209,917,000 children killed in the womb in England and Wales. During the pandemic, that's 575 a day. 575 children a day, innocent children killed in 2020 during the pandemic. We think as a country we have any virtue among us? No. We are a horribly wicked nation. And let's think about this for a second. You take away that, what you might call one sin, if you wanted to be so crude. You take that away. You've got 214,256 mothers. Who's going to feed them? Are they working while they're caring for the small children? In five years, that's a million little beautiful children. Who's going to take care of them? Where are all, where's all the workforce taking care of the million children that are now on our, to take care of? How many people have gone to university and then phoned up dad and said, sorry, I've got to drop out of university because I've got a child. I'm sorry, I've got to drop out of university because I have to go and get a job now because I have to pay for the child that I've put in another girl. So I don't finish my degree now. How many marriages? When the woman comes knocking on the door and says, your husband put a baby in me. She says, what? I didn't even know he was having an affair. (laughs) Well, if you live in a real world with real consequences, a solid world, (laughs) that's going to happen. 
What do you think now happens to all of our virtues? How to marry, what happens to the marriages? The pressure. I spent all this time getting you to university and you go and get knocked up like that. We think we've got virtue. We don't have virtue as a country. If you pull that one away from us as a country, what are we going to do? We would be in bits. But what does that mean for us? It means we are propped up like Ahab on countless murdered victims. Is your house big enough to take all the new children that you didn't want? The 250,000 children that weren't wanted? Do people just squeeze into the houses and then say, man, life's getting really hectic. Life was really neat with two kids. Because thankfully we killed one of them. The third one. It's shocking. It's stark. It's real. The twisted world of sin. You can't live in God's world if you don't live God's ways. As a friend of mine has said, trying to live in God's world without God as your king is like trying to eat with a fork in a world of soup. And that's what the world's doing. That's the first point. Second point, and the third point will be shorter. Second point is the Lord you can't escape. As I said, nobody saw anything, right? Out of all this that happened, the powerful did what they did, and the story ended. That's not true. Because the Lord sees everything. The Lord saw everything then, and the Lord sees everything now, and not one person who has taken a life, will walk away innocent on the final day. Let me read some other verses from the Bible. We've seen it here straight away. Ahab comes, he encounters Elijah. Elijah knows exactly what you've done. He says, verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Proverbs 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Which means keeping watch on you and me. Hebrews 4, verse 13, Nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jeremiah 23, verse 24, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not feel heaven and earth? Psalm 44, verse 20 to 21. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. We live in a world with a God who sees every single Action of every single person in every single place through all of history. He knows every single thought, every single deed, 
every single word, counting them and keeping memory of them is nothing for him. Nothing you do escapes the sight of the Lord. Not one thought, not one deed. And he will call every single one to account on the day of the Lord, which is going to be the day of judgment. He is the Lord that you cannot escape. And justice will be perfectly fit for you. We see that with Ahab. What has Ahab done? He has shed blood. What will happen to Ahab? His blood will be shed. That's not unjust. He was the one willing to take life. According to his standard, his own standard, he will be judged justly. Jesus Christ is the Lord you cannot escape. And he will bring fitting justice. Third point is the stunning mercy of God. Ahab gets grace? Really? Right? Look what it even prefaces the last section with a little bracketed piece in verse 25 and 26. Just so you're, just to get it, remind us of who's getting grace. What does it say? There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Okay. We thought he was very bad because we saw that this terrible picture. Thanks. Now you've re- reiterated that. We got that. Then what happens? Verse 27, 28 and 29. When Ahab heard these words, this word that judgment was coming for him and that that fitting recompense was going to be his, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Is that, is that enough? Is that fitting? Is that not the type of thing that we hear when somebody says, but so-and-so's done X, and now what? They're just going to repent? What if you're a relative of Naboth? You say to the Lord, huh? Do, do Do you not know what he did? Do you not know what it was like to be amongst the crowd? And see my uncle crushed, bloody with stones, knowing it was a total farce, and he's repented. And what does the Lord say? Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? And listen to this. Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Ahab gets grace. He gets time. We've been on Thursday nights studying Joel and Jonah. And in both of those books, you you get it very strongly in Joel. 
there's this section, chapter 2, verse 12, where after describing the great threat of the day of the Lord against a sinful people just like this, there's this wonderful phrase where the Lord, he says, yet even now, if you will return to me, I'll return to you. Yet even now, it's as though the Lord just over and over and over says, I know how bad you are. But believe it or not, if you repent, I will be gracious to you. Not in like a, I'll be gracious, but watch out, I've got a stick so that when you come close, I'll actually whack you. No. If you're thinking to yourself, it's too much to, to fathom. You, you, that's right. You're getting there. The Lord is full of steadfast love and mercy. That's just what he is. And you see it here that he's even willing to give Ahab any time at all. And this here, what we have with Ahab, it doesn't last forever. Because it's a picture and a, and a pattern that is all moving forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who didn't take an inheritance by shedding blood, but gave an inheritance by shedding his own blood. Who came to people who didn't deserve the inheritance of eternal life and to live with God in the new creation forever. But came down as the king and shed his own blood so that he could give us the inheritance that we don't deserve. I'm no better than the person that has had an abortion or that has been involved in the abortions. I don't deserve heaven. I've broken all of God's law. I've committed idolatry. I'm not righteous. I deserve to be cast out. I deserve to have all of those horrible things I've thought and said recompensed. That would be, that would be equity. That would be justice for me. If I would be judged the way that I've judged others. The stunning truth of Christ. The stunning truth and the stunning message of Jesus Christ is that everybody can receive the mercy of God through him. And receive not just a temporary, not just receive more time in this present life, but receive an everlasting portion of days in the new creation with God forever. Anybody that's had an abortion... You can have all of that sin completely removed. Made, you can be made completely white. Anybody that's been involved in abortions can be made completely whole and completely righteous. So that, as that wonderful song says, it's th- they're thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. No bottom and no shore, they never appear again. They never wash up one day and find you out. There is forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. 
even for those who have shed blood. That is why he came. He died. All the judgment has been sufficiently removed. All the wrath of God is completely taken because he has taken it. And that can be yours if you will humble yourself like Ahab and turn to the Lord and say, have mercy on me, O God. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you all the glory. Do your will. Amen.